2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Degena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Teresa Hoffer about her new book, Medicine and Memory in Tibet, M.C. Physicians in an Age of Reform, published by the University of Washington Press in 2018. Dr. Hoffer, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Great. Um, I wonder if we can begin the interview by talking about how you became interested in East Asian studies and specifically in Tibetan medicine.
1: Sure. Thank you for the question. Um, So yeah, it's kind of going back quite a long time. Um, So I started studying social and cultural anthropology at the University of Vienna in 1998 And I was initially interested in quite a few different areas of the world, Um, but then I made a trip to Ladakh in 1999, and that somehow really hooked me and got me really interested in the Himalayas and also the Tibetan languages, and I thought this is an area I would really love to explore more. I made a very brief trip to the exile community of Tibetans in northern India. And that's where I first uh, came across um, some English language books on Tibetan medicine. And I was uh, really fascinated reading them. And then a couple of years later, I was able to travel to Tibet for three months in quite a free way, which wouldn't unfortunately be possible these days. Um, And I was really lucky to deepen my understanding of Tibetan, which I started to uh, pick up at the Institute for Tibetan Studies at the University of Vienna in the meantime and uh, really try and apply it uh, in practice in traveling in Western Tibet. And then slowly, slowly, I learned more and also was able to learn more about this subdiscipline in anthropology uh, of medical anthropology. And then somehow these interests of mine came together. Uh, medical anthropology and the Tibetan region and Tibetan languages and Tibetan medicine. And I thought this would make a really interesting uh, research project uh, for my Magister dissertation. So at that time in Austria, you didn't have this distinction between a BA and an MA, but you straight went for a sort of advanced level of a master's degree in social and cultural anthropology. And we had to do a substantial research project at the end of about five years of studying So we sort of had covered the history and methods and theories in social and cultural anthropology. And then uh, we had to actually go and do an original piece of fieldwork. And I contacted uh, one of my lecturers, um, Hildegard Diemberger, if I would be able to carry out this kind of real ethnographic fieldwork project in Tibet and uh, she pointed me to various directions and various people who could help me in this. And I was extremely lucky because the Austrian Academy of Sciences at the time had a research collaboration with the Tibetan Academy of Social Sciences in Lhasa. And I was able to get under this research um, collaboration and do an original piece of fieldwork on the contemporary Tibetan medical practice in Western Tibet um, for six weeks in a place called Ngamring. Uh, which is about uh, 300 kilometers uh, west of Shigatse. And uh, so I could really deepen my understanding of the contemporary practice of Tibetan medicine and uh, use my Tibetan language and also work with a local uh, Tibetan research assistant uh, and translator. So I I feel, looking back, I feel extremely lucky to have had this chance relatively early on in my studies to do an original piece of fieldwork and uh, from that really i think the interest in tibetan medicine and the contemporary practice and recent history of tibetan medicine really took off all right thank you for
2: sharing that with us um it's it's quite an interesting uh journey so far and um how did you came to write this book uh, medicine and memory in tibet
1: so in a sense it goes back, I mean, some of the the interest and some of the ideas go back to this uh, piece of fieldwork I was able to do in 2003, when I made a connection to some of the main protagonists that are in the book, already back then. And uh, one of them, for example, uh, was a doctor who I only visited for one day at that time, it was quite a difficult journey to get there. And we had to go back within the day. But it sort of really stuck with me, this encounter with him because he was uh, one of those village amchis who were still almost completely relying on making their own medicines in their own home. He was at the same time a farmer and would just, whenever somebody was sick in the village, they would come to him and uh, he would diagnose them in the middle of the living room, the family living room and kitchen. And would either then, you know, grind some herbs also there on the kind of grinding stone on the floor, or he would perhaps apply some moxibustion or, you know, give some other kind of advice to that patient. And usually there wasn't any payment in return. So it takes a long time to collect those herbs. And um, so it was a relatively poor family. But as we got to know each other, and I was asking some questions about the family history, then... He got out those two uh, Tibetan books um, with this traditional sort of wooden covers on both sides. And I was told the history of those two books. And somehow that always stayed with me and kind of, I think, inspired this interest um, in the recent history of Tibetan medicine. So it was basically the um, Red Guards were approaching their house and uh, the mother of this particular doctor, Aramchi, knew that when they were going to be here, nothing was going to be, nothing was to survive of those books because everything was being destroyed. And so she was able to hide, pick out two books um, and hide them um, in between some junk in the back of the house. And then they came and they collected all the other books and carried two loads, two bags full of books, and uh, they were thrown in the local river. And the two books that survived in this family was a copy of the Gu Shi, the main uh, Tibetan medical text, often translated as the Four Tantras, and a medical compounding book. So how to compound um, different medical formulas. And there were lots of notes um, that the different members of the family generations ago had made on how to compound those herbs. And it really moved me that they decided that the decided to preserve those two books and that they in a sense are connected to the story of the survival of Tibetan medicine in that particular house because these Amchi and his brother when they were young they could access those books um, when many others couldn't and somehow this uh, encounter and many others um, Yeah, it really inspired me to understand the connection between contemporary practice and recent history, which I really think cannot be understood uh, without each other in this particular context. And how I came to research it was really as a kind of follow-on graduate research project uh, when I was at the University College London, London, um, working on my PhD. And I got a chance to go back to the Tibet Autonomous Region for a whole year. And this time I could not um, rely on this um, research collaboration between the Austrian Academy of Sciences and the Tibetan Tibetan Academy of Social Sciences. So I had to um, become a student at Tibet University in Lhasa. And whenever I was free or whenever I could get away, I would spend um, several weeks or long weekends and then the holidays uh, doing the actual research in Tsang. But because I already had made those contacts before, it was easier for me to go back to these uh, people I've met before. And also some of them had in the meantime uh, moved to Lhasa, so some of the interviews I could actually locally do. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a kind of fieldwork that's very much um, tied to a particular place, but also to a particular time. So I carried out the research for this book in 2006 and 2007. So this was a time when things were becoming more tense again, because China was preparing for the Olympics uh, in 2008. So already everybody, in a sense, had to be on best behavior, not to disturb the image that China was going to project to the world. But still, it was in a sense, now we know, still a kind of window of opportunity Um, of actually relatively freely moving about and um, meeting people and researching uh, topics such as this, even though I was still not given an official research um, permission from, for example, the Mensikang, the Tibetan medical hospital, where I also pursued this kind of uh, collaboration. But still, in general, I think um, people felt quite comfortable talking about Tibetan medicine and the recent history as it was not considered such a political topic. So, in a sense, I think the book really now we know benefits from that kind of window of opportunity, and that it would be quite hard to carry out this kind of research now. Quite apart from that, many of the people I interviewed were quite elderly at the time, and they, many of them have passed away by now.
2: Wow, it's really fascinating. It's, uh, it's almost uh, these arrangements seem very fateful, almost in a way. Um, Can you maybe first tell us a little bit about the history of Tibetan medicine? Um, I'm sure some of our listeners um, who are interested in this book might not be very familiar with the tradition.
1: Sure. (laughs) So as you know, all all history is is contested, of course. Um, So there are many ways of telling the history of Tibetan medicine. But roughly speaking, uh, we can say that um, the core... Text that a lot of Tibetan medical knowledge and practice relies on, this text, the Four Tantras that I mentioned earlier, or the Gyushi, um, was written, edited, compiled in the 12th century. And it's a compilation of a lot of different types of medical knowledge from this trans-Himalayan region, like with influences from South Asia, from India, what later became known as Ayurveda from Chinese medicine, but also with some influences from uh, Iran or Persian medicine, which has sort of come into this area, which was very much uh, connected to through the trading routes and through various um, trades and travels, you know, flows of Buddhist teachers in different directions and so on. So it's not at all a kind of that Tibet was this isolated place. And I think it very much uh, shows in the Tibetan medical tradition. So we have a lot of influences from South Asia and from China and from Persia. And in a sense, all of this different knowledge comes together in the 12th century under the editorship and authorship of Yuto Yuntengompo the Younger uh, in this book, The Four Tantras. And it's quite incredible to think that this book is still at the center of what Tibetan medical students are learning today. It's a a work of four volumes with 156 chapters. And it really describes the body in its interaction with the five elements of water, fire, earth, air, and space. And the three Nyepas, or what is sometimes translated as the humors, and the environment. And it describes the body as being in constant flux between this nyepa or these humors and the elements. And it demands an approach to health that includes dietary and behavioral adjustments and an interconnected understanding of how medicinal substances and foods within one's climatic environment affect the body within these dynamics. And this book um, was basically copied and um, used by many different doctors from the 12th century onwards. And then different schools developed, uh, regional schools that received support from different um, different Buddhist uh, traditions and Buddhist masters in different places, or also families uh, with means to support a medical doctor. And then more and more local and different knowledge was added on. So in particular, with respect to making uh, pharmaceuticals and making formulas, local traditions developed, um, local family specific formulas um, developed. And these were also recorded in different uh, medical works, as well as passed on through the practice of crafting medicines and actually practicing uh, the diagnosis and so on. So we always have to think of the kind of connection between medical texts and medical practice and how that changes over time. And usually the 17th century, late 17th century is considered another sort of pivotal moment in Tibetan medicine when under the uh, reign of Desi Sange Gyatso, um, to some extent these diverse medical traditions that had developed, he claims uh, that he unified them And this more unified medical tradition was then taught in the first official medical college called Chakpuri in Lhasa, on the top of Chakpuri Hill, this very famous location in the center of town, um, where a sort of more standardized kind of curriculum was introduced. And the story of this uh, medical college and the teachers involved, and desi sangi of course, is intimately linked to this set of medical tankas that we have, and that are existent now in several sets and that illustrate this original um, Four Tantras treatise or in fact Esi Gyatsu's commentary on these Four Tantras and it is indeed a stunning set of um, visual depictions of each and every aspect of the Tibetan medical tradition as well as of social life in Tibet. So we cannot only learn about Tibetan medicine and how doctors practiced and the diseases that the patients experienced, how they related to the doctors and so on. But we learn a lot about other aspects of life in Tibet in the 17th century with regard to architecture, the environment, movements of people, hairstyles, all sorts of things. So it's a fascinating source for a whole range of uh, cultural and historical Mm -hmm. phenomena. And then we come up to the, the the 20th century, 21st century. So usually then people are quoting the development of a kind of modern, more secular medical college of the Mensikang, founded in uh, the early 20th century in Lhasa. Um, but this is kind of taking quite a sort of centralist sort of institutional view on the history. I think there was a lot going on outside of those institutional sort of Lhasa-based um, medical institutions and lhasa based doctors. And that's in a sense, also the hole that my book tries to, to fill in actually learning about how did these doctors practice who were not with working from within those kinds of institutions. And I think maybe the 20th century history, we can perhaps, you know, talk, we will talk quite a bit more about the the sort of developments post um, 1951, 1959. Uh, with regard to the, the the role and fate of Tibetan medicine uh, with the integration occupation uh, into the People's Republic of China.
2: I see. Well, thank you for providing that uh, contextualization. Um, and your book actually traces the medical work and personal lives of relatively marginalized and localized Tibetan medical doctors, um, or um, amchis, right? Um, in your book, in rural settings in the regions of Tang, uh, which comprise comprises much of western and central Tibet, um, and you mentioned in the introduction of the book that this um, ethnographical study departs in four major ways from extant ethnographies and available scholarship on twentieth century history of Tibetan medicine. Can you tell us what these four interventions are?
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, Yes, so as I've just alluded to already a little bit in this kind of summary of um, sort of major milestones in the history of Tibetan medicine, even the way I was retelling it, it was very sort of focused on sort of Lhasa-based and sort of um, Tibetan government-associated institutions of medicine. And this is sort of where my book kind of comes in with these four interventions, as it first of all tries to offer an account of amchis who were not a part of the Tibetan state-supported medical structures, because it was these medical structures that were also incorporated during the 1950s into the People's Republic of China socialist healthcare system. So I'm focusing on doctors who were not a part of this incorporation from the start, even though some of them they later joined in. And it specifically wants to inquire into these practitioners' experiences and negotiations of socioeconomic and medical reforms. And like this, I I was hoping uh, for readers to be able to trace events and narratives of these communist socioeconomic reforms from a new and different perspective, namely of people who either by choice or by force remained outside of the official healthcare system, either because they worked on the margins, geographically or otherwise, or because they uh, chose not to be a part of these new um, developments. And uh, somehow we haven't really heard these voices so far because of the aforementioned very difficult research access in any case. um, And also the power of course of state institutions and medical institutions to write the history of medicine, which often sort of focuses on those state institutions. Um, So I was trying to find perspectives that have been absent um, from these accounts so far. And second, Uh, The second intervention um, is that I wanted to reflect newly on the literature that we have in anthropology and oral history and so on, uh, dealing with memory and oral history in socialist and post-socialist contexts, and also more broadly really thinking about these intersections of anthropology and history. And so the book really wanted to um, analyze marginal AMCI's accounts, not only in terms of the opportunity that they offer us to expand and question those central institutional and nationalist accounts, but also to actively and, and critically inquire into the social and political dynamics and processes that influence and determine all memory and history uh, wherever we study this phenomenon. And third, I was hoping to to more consistently address the topic of gender and tackle this lack of understanding of gender in Tibetan medical practice and recent history. And so I hope that I could offer some sort of new analytical tools also to allow including more women into, in the study of Tibetan medicine, such as, for example, through the concept of the medical house rather than this concept of medical lineage, which has been very sort of... Uh, paid Sort of um, patrilineally defined and often has excluded actually seeing uh, women who worked as medical practitioners or who contributed to medical practice. And then, fourth and last, I was hoping to really demonstrate how important Amchi's working outside of those state sponsored institutions actually were in continually transforming, but also in the survival of Tibetan medicine into the present day. So it was really, I think, through many of their negotiations and agency within these very harsh and violent reforms and very sort of delicate maneuvers within the new regime that I think Tibetan medicine uh, was able to be revitalized earlier than other aspects of Tibetan culture and history, namely in the early 1970s. So still during officially what was the Cultural Revolution. And so, for example, some Tibetan medical literature was republished um, much earlier, um, sort of, and and doctors were involved in refashioning this to serve the needs of the state as well as the the Diyamchis patients. And so it's kind of, it was really interesting for me to discover that this revitalization of Tibetan medicine was much earlier. And I think that this is connected to the very strong uh, position of Tibetan medicine today and also going into the near future.
2: Thank you. Um, the last point is especially interesting. Uh, we'll definitely explore that uh, in more detail in the, in the later part of the podcast. Um, but let's go to the chapters for now. So chapter one of your book um, entitled The Tibetan Medical House um, looks at the residential structures of the amchi or, or, or these Tibetan medical doctors, where they also performed consultations and prepared medi- uh, medications um, however, your research also reveals that the medical house is a lot more diverse in just providing these uh, basic medical services. So, what other roles do these medical houses play in Tibetan societies?
1: Okay, so because Tibetan medicine generally has been considered um, one branch of Tibetan Buddhist learning, um, in a sense, this connection between Buddhism and medicine in and of itself meant that. Um, the practitioners of medicine were often considered to practice a branch of Buddhism, and Buddhism was a highly valued. Yeah, so basically, because of this connection, uh, that medicine was considered also to be a part of Buddhism, uh, it was one of the five major branches of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, Tibetan medical practitioners were often considered to be of higher status than other people in the village. And also, it sometimes happened that... Uh, people who were practicing medicine were also involved in other uh, Buddhist activities or also working in other Buddhist fields. So we can say that generally um, they were considered as a sort of high-status family or a high-status house in a village. And it was exactly this higher social status that was actually the reason why Tibetan medical practitioners were often not allowed to continue to work afterwards as medical doctors – uh, because this uh, social order was to be reversed uh, with the communist reforms so people who were in previously high status um, positions or in buddhist uh, roles uh, were from then from 19 sort of early 1960s going forwards uh, not to be uh, considered as um, higher social beings in the village in a sense, so there was the, the, the social hierarchies were supposed to be flattened and that was actually the main reason why many doctors had to stop. It wasn't that they that in a sense there was an attack specifically on Tibetan medicine, but it was more that the underlying social system uh, had to be eroded and therefore they had to stop working.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Thanks for the answer. Um, and in chapter two, Medicine and Religion in the Politics and Public Health of the Tibetan State, um, you argue that although Tibetan medicine has been intimately connected with religion, specifically Buddhism, uh, Buddhist monks and monasteries actually played a relatively minor role, right, compared to the medical houses that you talked about in chapter one, um, in providing Tibetan medical treatment in um, the region of Namring especially during the 1940s and 1950s. And this is um, also true, um, especially to the laity, right? So what kind of people actually took on the role of these amchi or Tibetan doctors and provided medical services to the laity?
1: Yeah, so except uh, perhaps some smaller village uh, monasteries and smaller nunneries, um you know the the interaction between the laity and the monks was quite a formal one, and whenever there were medical doctors who were also monks working within monastic institutions, they would not, as a general rule, actually engage in treating um, lay patients, especially not from when they were not from their own family. So the major bulk of medical needs that Tibetans had. Before uh, the arrival of, of biomedicine or Western medicine, was the Tibetan medical tradition and or other sort of um, other kinds of um, um, help that they would get from specialists like astrologers or diviners, for example. But um, they played an extremely important role, amchi, uh, in these vast uh, and remote areas um, where it wasn't common that you could easily get to. Uh, larger cities to gain uh, medical treatment, even once some Western medicine had arrived um, through the British mission in Tibet. Um, but that was really very limited uh, to Lhasa and a little bit Chigatse and um, a couple of other places. So the bulk of medical need was filled by these lay amchis, either, as I mentioned in these medical houses themselves where patients would come and visit Or uh, they would actually be on the road to visit patients. Or you would also have this tradition that the patient themselves was, for example, immobile or couldn't travel anymore or was too far away. And they would send a family member walking or by horse to actually come and see the amchi and report what the person was feeling, maybe bring the clothes of that person so the amchi could smell them. And then either would give a sort of um, distant diagnosis, or they would also bring the urine sometimes, Uh, they would do a sort of distant diagnosis and then send them back with some medicines, or perhaps they would pick up the amchi to go back uh, to this person's house. Um, So the kind of, really, it was more or less the only only, um, medical treatment that people could actually get. And that was filled by these Le cheese and it was not considered appropriate for, for monks, especially of major monasteries, uh, to engage with the laity in that sense. Where in this, in this large Buddhist monasteries, medicine was also studied as a branch of Buddhism, but it was very often related to scholarly development. So, of course, the practice of medicine may have been also a part of these monks work, especially for fellow monks or uh, perhaps nuns, I'm not sure. Um, But it was also often connected to developing the Tibetan medical tradition and the scholastic thinking about the topics that Tibetan medicine uh, presented about the body, about the internal workings of the body, about the connection between the body and the wider cosmology.
2: And, And the same chapter also explores the relationship between medicine and politics, right? Um, so, how did state-sponsored public health campaigns um, in this period, in the 1940s and 50s, influence amchis and their practices? It's um, so in the first decade of the People's Republic of China.
1: Yeah. So initially, the um, so the the Menzikang in Lhasa was uh, the first kind of Tibetan government institution or one of the. F- few Tibetan government institutions after the Dalai Lama escaped in 1959 that was fully integrated into the People's Republic of China. Um, New government structures that came into place and it wasn't actually closed. So it continued more or less uh, smoothly into the new era. And um, activities in in the Menzikang expanded to make it a kind of valuable and more visible, um, visible sort of a way that they were serving the public. So, so far, the clinical activities of the Menzi Kang were still relatively limited. Uh, and also in Lhasa, there were a lot of private doctors who were working from their homes. So if people needed something, they were very likely to go and seek out those doctors who were practicing from their homes and not so much in the Menzikang. And uh, the director of the, the Menzikang, Champatin uh, at the time, uh, was making a great effort to model the Menzikang more along the sort of newly arrived uh, Chinese uh, Western medical um, uh, way of organizing a hospital. Uh, and he opened an outpatient clinic, which is sort of Better organized, and people could come, and the treatment also became more became more affordable. So they were trying to show the worth of the Tibetan medical tradition in the new era. Um, but these kinds of uh, the the practice in the rural areas, and also in Shigatse at the the Buddhist monastery Tashilumpo, had a had a small uh, medical college and also medical practice uh, didn't actually change that much in this period. And it was only really in the early 1960s when the reforms came to, to reform Tibetan society, according to communist and socialist thinking, that medical practice really began to change and that many people had to actually stop practicing or were only then later asked to restart again, but all under this new banner of serving the masses um, and serving the, new, the spread of communism.
2: Thank you. Um, And chapter three um, turns into um, a discussion, right, on the role of memory, especially in state-enforced narratives of Tibet's past uh, in the destructive decades of the 1960s and 70s, but also as a means for cultural preservation. Um, So how was Tibet's past remembered and narrated through the MC and these doctors? How did they use memory to preserve and even revitalize Tibetan medicine in these decades?
1: So, in a sense, the the story from 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 Tibetan Amchi's point of view is is very different from the one that um, is is recorded in the kind of more official history writing um, that has been going on um, from the kind of official point of view, in that the official point of view seems to sort of suggest that. Um, you know, Tibetan medicine was seamlessly integrated into the public healthcare system. And now instead of doctors working for their own benefit and exploiting people in various ways, it was made to serve the masses and um, various ridiculous kinds of treatments that were considered superstitious uh, were taken out. And the side that the tradition was kind of made more scientific and began to flourish under... Uh, the new communist regime. But Amchis themselves, they have a different story to tell. And that is, of course, that a great number of uh, medical works, a great number of uh, medical practitioners with great skills uh, were actually suffering greatly from the start of the reforms. And many books were um, destroyed Um, places to learn medicine, um, Tibetan medicine became very rare and it was also not officially allowed anymore. So in a sense, the tradition instead of flourishing is more seen under great threat and it's very hard and difficult and people have to start learning in a more secret way if they wanted to pursue the study of Tibetan medicine. And chapter three is really trying to get to the bottom of some of those narratives about these um, early reforms both sort of social reforms but also how tibetan medicine was affected by them um, through the the ways that uh, i had these conversations with people but of course i think it's very important to remember that um, even when i was doing my research it's not that uh, this is somehow a kind of free zone of open discussion and debate Um, as we perhaps have it after other traumatic um, historical events in other places. Um, But that these kinds of narratives are still, you know, the state narrative is still powerful. So it's a part of local narratives as well. And also that it's very difficult to um, really um, speak freely, even uh, when I was doing this research that it was very obvious and, and very difficult also to overcome the kind of constraints that these kinds of official narratives and whats what you're allowed to talk about and how you're allowed to talk about it is, of course, still prevalent. And also these people have been through really threatening and kind of very difficult times uh, that are also somehow embodied. So this sense of being careful how you talk about things is still was still very present.
2: All right, and, and here in the chapter you um, gave the example of of narrating bitterness, right, um, of remembering kind of past sufferings um, as sort of a a tool um, to create a certain narr- kind of narrative that is acceptable, right, by the state.
1: That's right. So that is, of course, you know, one of the tropes that was very much enforced is to. Uh, that in, in, in official uh, sort of public meetings that were organized and that became a part of the kind of, you know, very uh, common sort of struggle sessions and later in, in the beginning of the Cultural Revolution is to speak bitterness about the past, like that under the Tibetan government, how people were suffering and how they were exploited and how, you know, they didn't have health care and how poor people were just, you know, left to die without any medical care, And how you know medical doctors were just out for themselves, making money, and that they would have some of those ridiculous medicines and so on. And um, this kind of you know speaking bitterness about the old society was a really kind of was very widespread um, way of talking about so called old society or the tizong ningba. And then you know whereas the new society was going to even out these kinds of social differences, and everybody was supposed to uh, flourish under this new regime and, for example, gain affordable health care and good quality health care and all these kinds of things. So that trope it was still present in uh, some of the, the way people talked about um, the so-called old and new society, and uh, that I found very, very interesting. This trope, you know, is it's it's still not something that could be, you know, debunked or you know, kind of um, at least for some people. Of course, others did, um, and you know, there was a good deal of humor about uh, certain aspects of this telling of history as well.
2: That's very interesting. Um, and the following chapter um, goes into period of the Cultural Revolution, right? And, and as you mentioned, at the height of the Cultural Revolution, basic communist healthcare arrived in rural Tibetan villages through what were called the barefoot doctors. Um, so in Chapter 4, entitled The Medical Cultural Revolution, argues that um, a lot of shifts occurred in official policy and attitudes towards uh, rural Tibetan medicine. Um, at this time. So how did the barefoot doctors affect um, Tibetan medical practitioners like the amchis?
1: So the barefoot doctors uh, were usually uh, young uh, Tibetans drawn from socially, now socially desirable kind of backgrounds, which means that they were not from the previous, what previously were considered uh, elites or people associated with uh, Buddhist religion. So They were often um, drawn from quite regular sort of um, poorer backgrounds. However, uh, there were a few examples of people who came from a Tibetan medical family and were for that reason also asked to train for becoming a a barefoot doctor. Um, But the training as such to become a barefoot doctor was very basic. Um, And the in, even though they were supposed to use um, Chinese medical herbs, which were you know, mentioned in some of those books, the Barefoot Doctor Manual and so on, they were, of course, not available in Tibet. So there was uh, a little bit of this kind of folk knowledge about uh, local herbs and Tibetan medical knowledge about herbs was incorporated by these uh, Barefoot Doctors. But the main repertoire of Barefoot Doctors was a very small set of Western medicines and some acupuncture Chinese acupuncture, and this uh, very basic form of Chinese acupuncture is what came to the rural areas for the first time alongside some uh, Western or biomedical medicines uh, for the very first time. Because during the period of British influence in Tibet, some of those biomedicines arrived in Tibet, but not in those kinds of rural areas. So that really came with the doctors. Um, but the Amchi uh, physicians from the medical houses, they usually had the wrong sort of uh, class background to be drawn into becoming barefoot doctors. So many of them were uh, completely had to completely stop working as Tibetan medical doctors. And uh, a couple of protagonists in the book were able to continue because they were, became communist party members. And they were very um, eloquent rhetorically in praising the regime and uh, becoming a part of it. In a sense, um, and were given some allowances, because of course also there was a demand and the need for medical healthcare. So there were some exceptions, in a sense, were possible. Uh, I mean, one important thing to say about the about the, the barefoot doctor campaign in Tibet is that they that they were trying to. Um, use Tibetan medical compounds and Tibetan medicines after the Barefoot Doctor manual was published, um, because it only contained information about Chinese herbs, and many of them were not available. So there was a kind of early uh, publication to, to try and um, use Tibetan medicine's own repertoire as a part of the Barefoot Doctor campaign.
2: So in that period, I guess a lot of uh, things, a lot of um, state policies were introduced, right? Such as a barefoot doctor and they were giving these um, manuals to operate. Um, but things started to change again, right? Very we drastically in the following period in the 1980s and 90s. Um, this is sort of the focus in your chapter five, reviving Tibetan medicine, integrating biomedicine. Um, So here you talk about how the state policies actually encouraged the revival of Tibetan medicine on the one hand, while at the same time promoting uh, Western biomedicine. So how did these two processes carry out at the same time? Were they in competition?
1: Okay, so um, yes, there was a kind of... um, the focus became more on building up a kind of Western uh, medical, um, biomedical sort of infrastructure, also in the rural areas, such as in the county um, county capitals and in townships. Um, and at the same time, uh, Tibetan medical practitioners who survived and who had some of them kept up their practice, uh, they, of course in a sense, in the memory, but also in the contemporary situation, were still considered to be um, very important people in rural areas, um, after the kind of harsh reforms uh, finished. And some of them were able to connect quite swiftly to people working in these new biomedical institutions. And they were invited officially into those kinds of, for example, county hospitals or township clinics, And they basically opened a small section for Tibetan medicine in many of those um, biomedical facilities. And the Menzikang in Lhasa itself uh, flourished and also an independent Tibetan medical college was set up um, where Tibetan medicine was taught in a very uh, professional, sort of almost university uh, style manner. So um, I wouldn't say that they were really in competition with each other. I think the Western kind of medical institutions or biomedical institutions were definitely the set of new standard. And within that, Tibetan medicine was to be accommodated um, with this kind of approach of integrated biomedical and traditional medical care, which was, of course, modeled in the People's Republic of China more broadly. So you have many of these so-called integrated hospitals also in the People's Republic of China. And this sort of model of having integrated care also came to Tibet. And um, however, there were a few sort of independent new um, initiatives were started based on Tibetan medicine. And for example, one of them was a medical school a little bit outside of Shigatse, which was co-founded between the Swiss Red Cross and a local doctor uh, from Shigatse. And he was really sort of inspired by the 10th Panchen Lama and his mission to revive traditional Tibetan culture and to use the Tibetan language in teaching. And the doctors from that school were very important in Tsang um, because they were quite young and many of them started practicing in their own villages. But uh, a couple of things that I wanted to end to, to add to that. So I think um, it would be that the story is a lot more complex than to sort of than, than the competition, the outright competition between uh, biomedical and Tibetan medical practitioners. So what I was trying to show in that uh, chapter really were sort of two different strands of the revitalization of Tibetan medicine in the post-reform period. And one of them, to some extent, had been quite well covered in the literature, especially by the work of Jane's and others, which was basically the sort of official state-sponsored revitalization of Tibetan medicine, which often took place within a sort of biomedical paradigm and within biomedical institutions. And I already talked a little bit about that. Um, however, the story of revitalization of Tibetan medicine was a lot more complex and a lot more drawn out, actually, than this sort of state-sponsored revitalization. And that is what took place in the more private um, medical domain, including the fate and the situation of the medical houses that I described in earlier chapters of the book. Now, James and a colleague who specifically worked on this so-called revival of Tibetan medicine, comparing Central Tibet and Mongolia, hold that by the mid 1990s, the so-called institutions of Tibetan medicine, hospitals, clinics and medicine factories had been restored to their formerly integral position in Tibetan society. However, uh, how, what I'm trying to show in this picture that actually those kinds of institutions weren't really there before the reforms. What was there were amchis working in medical houses, amchis working in the, um, in the monasteries and in some nunneries. And then these very few and far between government sponsored institutions like the Mensikang or the Chakpuri. And I kind of traced the trajectory of those more private initiatives and what actually happened to those medical houses. Were they able to be repealed? Were practitioners you know, setting up practice there again? And in what ways had that practice changed? And what I found was that it was actually a lot more difficult and a lot more drawn out to re establish those. Um, kind of medical institutions outside of state sponsorship um, in the late 70s, 80s, and 1990s. And I tell the story of uh, three or four medical houses and also several monastic and practitioners in how they achieved, uh, to some extent, the revitalization of their practice. And I look at how those initiatives related to the state-sponsored forms of revitalization. Now, um, the story in a sense becomes really complex when we are looking at those Tibetan medical practitioners who did start working within the state-sponsored institutions, where they were required to practice a form of integrated medicine and a lot more standardization of Tibetan medical practice started to occur. And especially when we come to consider the insurance policies uh, with regard to the funding of Tibetan medical versus biomedical um, care. And that sort of leads into the chapter six, uh, where we're talking about the political economy of Tibetan medicine and medical care and medical primary care more broadly. But in a sense, um, what I was trying to show was that even though these private practitioners outside of the state reforms were having a difficult time re-establishing their institutions, they were nevertheless crucial for Um, rural um, populations because with the mid 1990s and these kind of new economic instigations like new sort of capitalist instigations that also encompassed Tibetan medicine they became really crucial in continuing to provide Tibetan medical care for people even though sometimes people were not able to pay and um Really, there was a lot of these kind of long-standing Tibetan medical practitioners who'd weathered the reforms, who were willing to give uh, out Tibetan medical care for free using money uh, from their own pensions. And I think this is something we'll, we'll come to talk a little bit more also when we discuss uh, the next chapter, chapter six.
2: Great. Thank you. I, I think your um, sort of highlighting of the agency of, of these local Tibetan medical practitioners, the MGs, are really important here in this chapter. And like you said, in chapter six, um, we kind of shift to the economy, right? And interestingly, in this chapter, looking at illness entitled, you observe from your field work um, that the MCs, or these Tibetan medical doctors, um, their medical encounters and their um, medicines were were given entirely free of charge uh, most of the time, and that many of his patients were very little involved with the cash economy, so here you're, you're asking two really insightful questions in the chapter. Um, so quotes, in what ways do Amchi and Tung engage in Soba Rikpa, moral economy, and what is at stake in the Pan Chinese and Tibetan autonomous region, specific political economy of primary health care? Um, so what's your answer to these questions?
1: Okay, so let's uh, let's pick those two questions apart a little bit. So let's uh, look at the first question in what ways do Amjinsang engage in a So moral economy? So here, I think it's basically a So moral economy that reckons the and takes into account the situations of the people and the patients that they are encountering. And many of those patients are until recently and even still today often operating and living outside of a solid cash economy and they're depending on their land and to some extent a subsistence economy uh, to survive. And in order to carry out their work, they depend on their bodies and their physical uh, fitness to carry out the work in order to survive. And so I was basically um, going back to this, you know, classical studies of peasants' resistance to market-driven transformations of traditional modes of productions and distributions, which you know many of the listeners will be very well aware of, um, such as historians such as Thompson working in 18th century Great Britain, or James Scott with his uh, famous work in Southeast Asia, such as Weapons of the Weak, and so on, for where this sort of moral economy argument derives from. And what they posited was that physical survival is at stake and was at stake when these peasants stated the moral illegitimacy of certain capitalist practices and demanded a minimal subsistence and food rights. Now, in contrast to this sort of um, moral economy, which is related to physical survival, we've had uh, several colleagues now who have worked on this sort of moral economy of Tibetan-ness and what the role of Tibetan medicine is in that. And they posit that it's not really about physical survival, but rather cultural survival. So in other words, about Tibetan identity, and that those sorts of attempts to, that Tibetan medicine plays a major role in that. And it's very much related to the sort of global moral economy of the Tibet question. Now, in my work, however, I found that the medical work of people like Yonten Tsering and the doctors at the Tashi Medical Monastery, Monastery and the medical clinic there, but also other village Amchis, really evidence actually the need to bring back this material and physical survival, the issue of bodily health and well-being into our analysis of moral economy of Tibetanness. And I, I, I argue that the Sova moral economy therefore needs to be studied in the contexts of both industrialization and privatization of primary health care, because those two forces actually have meant that fewer rural patients are actually able to really access good quality health care to address their long-term um, medical needs. And I'm, I'm really sort of relating in this sense also to other colleagues' works who find that Tibetan medicine often really still makes a tangible difference to physical survival and subsistence, um, such as the work by Sienna Craig in Nepal and also Callum Blake in Ladakh, where we also have instances of this sort of moral, soarigba moral economy, where doctors are there for the community of people who are often not involved in the cash economy and they're having a sort of um, uh, non-financial exchange uh, with their patients. And I think this sort of um, morally informed medical practice really appears to be a necessity in these more marginal places where government healthcare and also internationally driven initiatives are often actually very rarely reaching. And now, coming to your second question, uh, which is of course related, then that begs the question really, what is at stake in the Pan Chinese and Tibet Autonomous? Uh, Region specific political economy of primary healthcare. Um, so, I think what is at stake really is um, that basically there have been very large um, changes in the funding of um, primary healthcare services. So what we have seen is that in the mid 1990s alongside a new wave of economic liberalization which has also meant a reduction in of input of state finances into the healthcare system the burden of uh, the payment for medical services has been put onto uh, patients in Tibet such as, as well as in you know China more broadly and it just took taken a while until um, the consequences of this has been have been recognized by the government, and a new form of medical insurance has been introduced um, in the early two thousands. And initially, in that medical insurance scheme, Tibetan medicine wasn't at all included. And um, the whole sort of economic, sort of new wave of economic liberalization has also meant that there's a whole Range of capitalist incentives to privatize healthcare, and so there has been a lot more private um, money that has been able to that has been raised into medical services of all stripes. However, of course, this you know may be a very um, nice economic model for urban Tibetans in the middle or upper class um, sort of social situation, social and economic situation in more urban areas. But of course, it's very difficult to participate in this if you are not that involved in the cash economy. So, the question of uh, what is at stake that in the wider moral economy of of healthcare, um, really is that in a sense, there the access and affordability of suitable, effective, and affordable healthcare is still lacking in many rural parts of Tibet, and this continues to this day. Um, and because of the End um, of the contract of many NGOs that used to work, for example, in Tang, the Swiss Red Cross and others. I, I think in many ways, the situation, even though the roads have improved, perhaps, you know, more economic opportunities have sometimes opened up for people. I think the lack of uh, medical services is still very great. So I think we're still having sort of, we still have to have that debate of what is the role of Tibetan medicine, and what is the role more broadly of primary healthcare services in order to ensure physical survival and also um, to some extent, you know, um, mental kinds of um, well being that is related to, you know, broader changes of society?
2: Yeah, this is a really kind of refreshing, innovative perspective. And indeed, in Sora Rikpa, uh, religious capital is another. Kind of thing, right? In in this moral economy, um, that these MGs hold in um, in sort of considerable amounts, right?
1: That's right. So so I, I wanted to. That's that's good that you raised that again as well. So go, So for example, it's um, one of the quotes that I have in in my chapter is from one of the doctors who spent you know almost his entire government uh, pension on buying medicines and giving them out for free to patients. Uh, was uh, quote. It's good to, it's, um, it's okay to take money for this life, but it's not okay for the next. And this is a kind of common attitude I found among many different Tibetan doctors, especially the elderly Tibetan doctors, um, that they felt their medical practice was a religious practice and this sort of selflessness and generosity that they practiced by practicing medicine was equal uh, to other people's uh, perhaps more conventional Buddhist practices.
2: Thank you for adding that. Yeah, indeed. Um, And in the conclusion chapter, you offer a really thought-provoking observation that has to do with our discussion just now that uh, medicine is almost is an exception in uh, modern Tibet, right? That's um, so quote, this is um, from your book, by the early years of the new millennium, Tibetan medicine became one of the most vibrant domains for the expression of Tibetan language and culture within and beyond the Tibetan autonomous region, especially compared to other expressions of Tibetan culture, such as Buddhism and the fine arts. So this is a really interesting observation of medicine as exception. And Why is this the case and what does it tell us about the fate of Tibetan medicine in the future?
1: Yes, that's a very um, nice um, kind of summary of, of some of the concluding comments of the book and uh, and a kind of great question to go forward with and to keep thinking about. So I think when I say um, one of the most uh, vibrant domains for the expression of Tibetan language and culture, um, of course, we have to think about this in relation, um, not necessarily to previous eras or other parts of the Eastern Tibet, for example, but also in relation to what's going on in other domains today within economy and education, and in particular, the role of the Tibetan language in Tibet. So even in the early 2000s there were only two um courses at Tibet University that were in or at in in the in the university sector in Lhasa that were entirely run in the Tibetan language and uh, one of them Tibetan literature is now also not actually taught anymore fully in Tibetan language but it's really only the Tibetan medical college which is entirely teaching its curriculum in the Tibetan language now i'm not saying that in a sense um, that it's now the most vibrant um, area of Tibetan language and culture is is necessarily only to do with Tibetan medicine in and of itself as a phenomenon, but also in relation to what's going on more broadly. And there we see a kind of continuous decline of the use of Tibetan language, um, especially in the literary and in the educational domains. So that's, of course, something that relates now to my current work um, even more. But just to bear this in mind as as we discuss this. So, however, what what could be reasons why uh, Tibetan medicine is this kind of exceptional domain of Tibetan economy, culture and language at the moment and since the start of the new millennium? So, first of all, there is the historical trajectory that I've tried to trace in my book, where we have seen a slightly more continuous way that Tibetan medicine Uh, was practiced however low the level sometimes was throughout almost all of the cultural revolution even and we saw for example that some of the core texts of tibetan medicine in the tibetan language were much more swiftly made available again even as early as 1974 or 1976 on the other hand the full-scale liberalization of Buddhist practice and, you know, the religious domains and the establishment of the monasteries and so on that only really began in the 1980s. Now, a very broad sort of context, of course, to the sort of medicine as exception phenomenon for traditional medicine in China is the wider rhetoric that Chairman Mao has adopted uh, early on that Chinese medicine is a treasure house of the nation. And here we have to remind ourselves of the fact that Tibetan medical doctors in the early 1970s were able to also pitch Tibetan medicine as such. Tibetan medicine is a treasure house of the nation. It's written in the front covers of several of those books published in the early 1970s. So they managed to kind of bring Tibetan medicine also into that same rhetoric. And that's, I think, really quite important. Now, then there are sort of some more generic, uh, I think, factors to do with um, the fact that illness is something that befalls everybody. And there is always a real need for medical care. People are pragmatic. They use and take what is on offer. And in that sense, Tibetan medical practitioners, even if they were officially blacklisted or officially um, reprimanded during those reforms, some of them continue to provide services and thus could also sustain some of their skills through these really difficult reforms. Of course, this was all within within the relative context. But then coming to the contemporary situation and the situation of language, um, I think uh, Tibetan medical consultations are much, much more likely to be carried out in the Tibetan language than a biomedical consultation. Because all the the language of biomedicine in Tibet obviously comes from Chinese and is literally often referred to as Chinese medicine or among the older population as so-called communist medicine or Tangmen. So in a sense, the language of biomedicine in Tibet is Chinese and the language of Tibetan medicine is still uh, Tibetan. And I think language is really important in medical encounters and to use one's own mother tongue in a medical consultation, one's own native language also being used to bridge that gap of understanding that always exists between a doctor and a patient is really attractive and really important. And we see this again now that with a lot of the COVID-19 related public health care information, for example, is sometimes for the very first time communicated in these sometimes highly minoritized Tibetan languages on the eastern parts of the Tibetan plateau, even if they're not written down, they're delivered as video, audio messages. And I think this use of one's native language in a sort of liminal state of physical or mental unwell, well-being or, you know, being ill is really important and provides more comfort. So there is also some kind of, a, you know, attraction towards Tibetan medicine and the use of Tibetan language in Tibetan medical consultations. And another reason perhaps... The last reason, even though we we need to keep thinking about these topics, is that I think why does Tibetan language remain strong in Tibetan medicine is also because many of the concepts, as well as the plant names, they do not easily translate and readily translate into another language. And that's not only into Chinese, but also into English and other uh, languages in the case of plant names, for example, the Latin uh, classifications. Now, how does all of this relate to the future of Tibetan medicine? That's a very big question. (laughs) And perhaps we should consult with the diviners of the Tibetan world on this. But (laughs) perhaps I can uh, give my own humble opinion um, before we we track them down, maybe for your next uh, podcast. So I think if we consider usually that the the future growth growth of anything, right? Um, we need to consider the foundations and the roots, so to speak, um, of a tree or of a plant or of the foundations of a house. The stability of the house is very strongly related to the foundation. So, so what are the what are the roots or the foundations of Tibetan medicine? Um, that's obviously on the one hand, the availability and the quality of the raw ingredients, mainly the herbs. And on the other hand, the skills, the medical skills in, in compounding and in clinical diagnosis and therapy. And I think this is what we need to think about. Um, what is the situation today? And what will the situation today um, hold for the future? And perhaps my biggest concern here is to do with the raw ingredients and the herbs, because with this increased industrialization of Tibetan medicine, so this is really a huge industry now. We notice, you know, it's it's following the sort of templates of the Chinese medical industry. So Tibetan medical industry is really big. Um, of course, much smaller than the Chinese medical industry or industry of Ayurveda in India. But still, like for the kind of, you know, number of the population and so on, it's, it's really huge now compared to before. And the production of these new compounds, which are often over-the-counter drugs for which you don't need to have a consultation, they need to come from somewhere. And almost all of the herbs that are used in Tibetan medicines, produced in the TAR or in, you know, other areas of Tibet... They are wildcrafted, so they are collected in the wild. And they're more and more collected by people who are not specifically trained how to collect them. So year on year, um, some of those ingredients are, some of those plants are either growing smaller or they're not growing anymore in the region or they're growing only higher and higher up, further and further away from the areas where people are collecting them or where there is also new infrastructure projects and so on going on. So um, that's, of course, really worrying because the future of Tibetan medicines depends on those raw ingredients and it's almost impossible um, to actually um, grow a lot of those ingredients and try to replicate the conditions of these high-altitude plants so it's very difficult even with quite regular plants to re to 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 grow them in um to grow them in sort of um you know kind of cultivation sort of um settings um but these kind of plants are extremely well adapted to the environment to this high altitude environment of the Himalayas and Tibet and it's really not easy uh once some of them are endangered to bring them back either you know in the wild or also Um, By cultivation. So that's something that concerns me greatly. (laughs) And I think the other the other issue around medical skills, I think generally, you know, really quite the the theoretical training is really quite good um, in the Tibetan Medical College and also with regard to the diagnosis. I think perhaps what we need to think about more also is this sort of division that's occurred between the clinical practice of Tibetan medicine and the compounding of medicines, and that there are certain drawbacks um, that will have an effect also on the efficacy in the future, both of the medicines and the therapies. Um, So that's something else we need to think about. But in general, I think one positive thing definitely is that I think the Tibetan language will continue to play a major role in the future of Tibetan medicine
2: all right thank you this has been a really rich discussion on on tibetan medicine and yeah indeed it's also really closely tied to the climate right so climate change is going to play a big factor around how tibetan medicine develops in the future well dr Hoffer, um we've taken up a lot of your time and before we end our podcast today um we have to give you the final kind of traditional question right on our network. What are you working on right now? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your current projects?
1: Sure. So as, as the listeners are probably well aware, it's not easy at all to continue um, to have a research commitment in the Tibetan regions of China at this moment. And after the year uh, 2008, which was a watershed really um, for almost all foreigners involved in one way or another, both in research or also in the work of NGOs in the Tibetan areas of China. So, um, however, I was able to pursue an interest that came up during my research on Tibetan medicine and primary health care in Tsang. Um, One of the things I noticed uh, in rural areas, and which the book also discusses, is this great use of antibiotics in quite sort of uh, basic conditions, quite basic, um, you know, quite minor illnesses as kind of a go-to therapy. And sometimes people administering these medicines with quite um, low level of training in using those um, antibiotics. And of course, this has led to, unfortunately, a lot of um, unexpected or un hoped for side effects of those antibiotics and one of the side effects that I came across repeatedly was the autotoxicity of antibiotics that means the, um, the side effect of antibiotics being toxic to the ear um, often leading to uh, a lo- lack of hearing or a loss of hearing or to deafness and indeed there is an over the average uh, occurrence of deafness in Tibet And uh, that is something that I kind of started to witness more and more in my work. And then completely unrelated to this, I met a few deaf people who were involved in documenting and trying to formalize the Tibetan sign language in Lhasa in 2007. And that really struck me so much because even though I had engaged with Tibetan language and with the literature on the region for so long, I never ever came across anybody making any reference to Tibetan sign language, not even in the linguistic works of the region. So that really caught my interest and I became more interested and familiar with the people I met. And I was uh, very much invited in to learn more about the documentation of Tibetan sign language and started to learn and pick up some of the language myself. And somehow, uh, there are a few other occurrences (laughs) which were really fascinating me. And I thought, okay, if I ever get a chance to do more research, I really would love to know more about Tibetan Sign Language, this kind of recent emergence of Tibetan Sign Language, because it really only emerged in the early 2000s. So while the whole world is talking about language endangerment and we're losing languages, now all of a sudden here in Lhasa, we actually have the a rising of a new language, and that really I thought was a really fascinating, um, fascinating topic. And so I embarked on uh, fieldwork over all seven months so far on spending time with deaf Tibetans in Lhasa, using the Tibetan sign language, and also working with deaf people who are using Chinese sign language. Sort of looking at this sort of specific situation of language use among deaf people within the wider changing sociolinguistic. Um, situation of Tibetan and Chinese in Lhasa and central Tibet. So I'm working on a book on this uh, project and it's not going to be. I I don't think it's going to end up being an academic monograph as such, but I want to write this book for a broader audience. So this is something new for me, but I'm really enjoying that process of writing. It's a different one from from writing an academic monograph. So that's been really rewarding. Yeah, and otherwise I'm uh, actually currently on a on a short uh, fellowship in Japan, where I work at the National Museum of Ethnology in Osaka, on a project on uh, universal museum design in anthropology. So the question of, you know, how can anthropological museums be really accessible and enjoyable for all visitors, no matter what their uh, sensorial dominance is whether this is a blind person or a deaf person or somebody who is regularly sighted or regularly hearing Um, how can a museum really be opened up for all people who come through the door and how can we get away from this sort of idea that the sort of negative idea of removing barriers for some niche groups of people how can we really think about how can everybody benefit more from from thinking about all the different senses that we have in experiencing a museum and how can we develop certain sensorial understanding uh, if we don't already have it and how can we for example learn from the visual acuity that many deaf people have or from the tactile dominance that many blind people have so not sort of thinking that, you know, as somehow perceived norm norm has to be or normal people have to adapt museum practices to those sorts of niche populations, but how can we all think about learning more and new things by opening up the museum for a whole range uh, of very diverse peoples and people's needs?
2: Wow, these sounds like a really fascinating projects. And in your book on spent in sign language. I'm definitely looking forward to reading that. I'm sure our listeners will be too. Well, well, thank you so much today, Dr. Hoffer, for taking the time to speak with us about your fascinating book and future projects. Thank you so much again.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and and good luck with your own research and writing.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Well, until next time. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.